Creston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me on this day before Thanksgiving. We've got some great things uh, to discuss. You know, on this day, 60 years ago, President Kennedy was assassinated. Our friend Peggy Stanton was a young reporter at the time, working in Milwaukee, the early stages of her career. I've asked Peggy to come on and share those memories with us of that day. Um, If we were, you know, beyond the age of reason in 1963, we probably all remember it. So uh, I've asked Peggy just to share what she remembers as a reporter. Also coming up today, Dr. Peter Crafe, a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Uh, He's going to take us on a look of three pop culture giants, C.S. Lewis, Aldous Huxley, and JFK himself. And they're going to discuss life, death, and what lies beyond. Uh, that's coming up today uh, with Peter Kreeft. Also, St. Thomas Aquinas, well-known for his contributions to philosophy. That's the way a lot of people think of him. That's not, he, that's not how he thought of himself. He thought of himself, first of all, as a theologian and a biblical theologian at that. And it's funny that this aspect of his thought has been neglected for so long. Thankfully, his commentaries are now uh, coming in print, and Dr. Matthew Livering will be joining us to talk about Thomas Aquinas, the biblical theologian. And then I'm going to take time with Matthew Bunsen to look over the situation in Argentina. They had election um, this last week, in which uh, a libertarian, he calls himself an anarcho-capitalist, Javier Millet, uh, was elected. And he represents a radical shift in the economic direction of Argentina. Argentina is in triple-digit inflation. It was one of the richest nations in the world per capita. It is now down, I think, number 66 Millet is promising to bring free market solutions to this country, and it will give us an opportunity to look at this experiment in free markets. But he's been a big critic of Pope Francis, and Matthew Bunsen and I discuss it. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, November 22nd. It's the Feast of St. Cecilia. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. All four U.S.-Canadian border crossings in western New York are closed following a vehicle explosion on one of the bridges between the two countries. The explosion happened at the Rainbow Bridge in Niagara Falls. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau recently updating the situation. There are a lot of questions and we are following up to try and get as many answers as rapidly as possible. Uh, We are in close contact with U.S. officials and we'll continue to work closely with them. There are reports of two deaths at the scene. Eyewitnesses telling Fox News it had something to do with a car speeding into an inspection booth on the U.S.-Canadian border. The Niagara Frontier Transportation Authority says there will be increased security at the airport as well as the rail system. 
Israel and Hamas have agreed to a ceasefire in Gaza to allow hostages to be released and to let in aid. NBC News' Keir Simmons. The pause will be four days. On each day, more hostages will be released and in exchange, Palestinian prisoners will be released. The deal would see at least 50 hostages captured by the militant Palestinian group released in exchange for 150 Palestinians held by Israel. The deal will also let in trucks to bring fuel and medical supplies to Gaza, which has been under nonstop bombardment since attacks by Hamas on October 7th. And a diocese in southern Spain has begun receiving requests from Catholics to promote the canonization process of Diego Valencia, the sacristan who was murdered by a Muslim extremist last year. Valencia was fatally wounded after being struck by a machete wielded by a Moroccan national who entered the church of Our Lady of La Palma and began striking statues and candles. His pastor, Father Juan Marina, is supporting the process to open the diocesan phase of canonization. From your Ave Maria Radio Dodd News Desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News and a Senior Fellow at St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Uh, Matthew uh, has long been active in Catholic social communications. Uh, he has authored and edited more than 50 books, uh, including uh, the Encyclopedia of Catholic History, the Saints Encyclopedia, the Pope Encyclopedia, and a best-selling biography of St. Damien of Molokai. Uh, Matthew, thanks for joining me today. Good to be with you, as always. Argentina uh, used to be one of the, as I read anyways, Argentina was at one time one of the top ten richest countries in the world per capita. And now they have triple-digit inflation uh, and... uh, an economy which seems to be uh, just out of control. They had elections uh, this last week, and with 56% of the vote, they elected this libertarian economist, Javier Millet, for their next president. But he's a special interest to us because he's been an outspoken critic of Pope Francis in Pope Francis's right. home country. <laughs> so That's right. You know. <laughs> with with a, a papal trip, possibly on the immediate horizon, Yeah, uh, adding uh, into the discussion here. Uh, but you're right. Uh, in this case, um, the situation facing Argentina economically has been uh, just absolutely brutal, uh, especially coming out of the COVID uh, pandemic. Yes. As you noted, inflation now, I think, is at about 143 <sighs> percent for the country. You also have uh, massive debt in terms of reserves of foreign currencies. Uh, there are a lot of calls to dispense with the peso. Uh, we have a recession that seems to be in the offing uh, and perhaps pushing 50% of the country is now in some form of poverty or nearing the poverty rate. Wow. That explains in part why uh, Javier Malay was able to uh, come to power as he did. The other thing that uh, complicated the election uh, for the ruling party, which is the Union for the Homeland, I believe it's called, is that the incumbent president, Alberto Fernandez, reading the tea leaves, uh, decided to not to seek re-election, which meant that Sergio Massa uh, took over, and he's the one who took on Javier 
a melee. And the, the, the first round was a surprise to a lot of people that uh, melee did so well. Uh, it led to a runoff, uh, which was just held. And in this case, uh, melee won, I think, with about almost 56% yeah, of the vote. That's, that's uh, what so I was a, a major political shock. But when you look at some of the other changes that have been taking place in, in a few other countries in Latin America, uh, we are perhaps seeing a the inevitable turn away from these socialist and left-leaning regimes yeah. uh, to more right-wing uh, or certainly more conservative governments. And I think Argentina is no exception. In this case, however, Millet is highly unusual because of his flamboyant uh, nature and ob- the obvious comparisons that are being made uh, of him to Donald Trump. Right, right. Yeah, uh, and, you know, th- this is a fellow who is apparently uh, very much in uh, contact with uh, free market think tanks, um, so he's at least in touch with a certain type of economic theory, um, and uh, he's called a free market uh, economist. Uh, he's also an ally of Israel and the United States. He's, he's opposed... That's right an adversary of China and left American, Latin American leftists. Um, it's been pointed out by John Fund at National Review that uh, Malay's plan to dollarize the Argentine economy is going to blunt China's effort to undermine the U.S. currency. So, you know, from our point of view, it does, that sounds fine. Um, yeah, but yeah. T- what's his... And he's very outspoken in terms of uh, his support of Israel. As you know, yeah. him. in fact, I think he was flying the Israeli flag just a few days ago. Oh. Uh, he has promised um, pretty massive uh, changes to the governmental structure. Uh, he's promising to close, to purge outright a number of for what he sees are unacceptably left-wing uh, ministries, including one that uh, is designed to advance DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the, the pro-life movement sees him as a potentially, and we always have to stress potentially, strong ally, uh, because he seems to be uh, very much in favor of the pro-life position. And now he has also, as you noted, had some pretty sharp things to say about Pope Francis. Uh, is it because... Well, first of all, I know that he thinks Pope Francis is, he's called him a, a communist, uh, a leftist. Uh, it's clear Pope Francis is no communist, but uh, his economic thinking is certainly uh, to the left of Malays, I would suppose. Uh, but is it primarily the economic issues that he differs with Pope Francis on? Yeah, I, I think he... Uh, uh... He's also very anti-institutional, as we have seen, yeah. uh, which is one of the reasons why I think he uh, once called Pope Francis the, quote, representative of the evil one on Earth. Oh. Uh, and now, in, in that sense, uh, the, the various insults, uh, he certainly was called upon uh, to apologize. Uh, but it's a, a, always an important thing that... Uh, Language changes dramatically once you're actually in power and you're <laughs> uh, actually... Uh, elected, and during the debates, Malay, in fairness to him, uh, offered an apology and, and yeah. said certainly that uh, if Pope Francis wants to visit Argentina, uh, he would be respected in two roles. The first is as the head of state, uh, but also then as leader of, of the Church. And we know that in the wake of uh, the election, Pope Francis uh, reached out to Malay and congratulated him. And it was, by every account, uh, a very positive and uh, gracious conversation. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, yeah, I, 
Malay, I went somewhere, uh, and I, I haven't gone to confirm it, uh, is, is some type of Catholic. Do you know that? Uh, that seems to be the case, uh, although it's a little hazy as to uh, how active he is in practicing. Right, right. Uh, again, he's a very flamboyant figure, uh, and he's, he's made some references, I think, in the past. I could be mistaken to actually attending a synagogue, but again, that, that's part of his nature, apparently, to be very, again, flamboyant. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the more curious things about him is he has reportedly cloned some of his pets, uh, which <laughs> really? is an unusual step to take uh, and certainly raises some interesting questions about where he stands on things like cloning. But um, again, this is a very different type of a politician. Yeah. And uh, the communications that he's had with, with Pope Francis, though, uh, and, and this is key to stress, that he referred he reportedly, and this is according to Argentinian news sources, uh, referred to Pope Francis as His Holiness. And uh, Pope Francis, in turn, uh, pointed out uh, the importance of things like health, education, and poverty. And certainly, Malay has his hands full uh, with the Argentine economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that standpoint, I think he's going to need all of the help uh, that's available to him. Yeah. I know that the uh, the Argentine Bishops' Conference, uh, especially its president, uh, which is Bishop Oscar Ojea, uh, promised prayers for everyone, uh, given just the, the importance of preserving democracy, which seems to have been an, an important part of this election, where this is a stable transition of power, uh, but then also just the, the sheer scale of the economic problems facing Argentina. And, and as you know, it, it, it isn't simply Argentina. This is going to be a problem that is now gripping much of South America. Yeah, no, very true. I'm curious, uh, can Pope Francis vote in his homeland's elections? Well, he has retained uh, his passport. In fact, a few years ago, he went to, uh, to some pains to make sure that his passport was renewed, which had fueled at the time some speculation that... Um, given the, the, his own references to possibly retiring at some point in the future, which strikes me as somewhat unlikely in my personal opinion, mm -hmm. but uh, that it opened the speculation uh, that he might choose to return to Argentina should he do so. So uh, I think it was kind of a gesture on his part to say that he is still, uh, still considers himself to be an Argentine uh, and wants to keep some sort of a direct connection to his homeland. Yeah. Uh you pointed out to me or before we came on the air that there is some controversy surrounding uh, Pope Francis's words after the uh, general audience today. Is that uh, can you can yes, you share uh, some of so, that? Yeah. Uh, so Pope Francis, as he does, uh, held his general audience today, and um, including in in uh, his comments, uh, as he does always at the end of uh, his general audience, uh, made a plea for peace. And then apparently used a phrase, and we are looking for the exact translation, uh, in which he seemed to say, in, in talking about uh, the situation in Gaza uh, and just the, the conflict that is taking place in the Holy Land, uh, that he had met with relatives of um, Israeli relatives who have hostages in Gaza, mm -hmm. and then another separate private meeting with Palestinians, 
uh, who have relatives imprisoned in Israel. And he, he noted that, and I'm quoting basically from a rough translation from the Italian, that they suffer so much, and I heard how they both suffer. He said, wars do this, but here we have gone beyond waging war. This is not warfare. This is terrorism. Now, it's a question, of, first, of course, whether this is an off-the-cuff remark, yeah. uh, but I think Francis is trying to make a rhetorical point here, because he followed that immediately by saying, let's move forward for peace, pray for peace. Now, there's been some controversy, apparently, that emerged out of those private meetings uh, with uh, the two separate ones, and we have to make note that there were journalists not present at either of those private meetings, okay. separate private meetings. So we're not sure exactly what transpired, uh, but some of the participants uh, on the Palestinian side uh, claim that Pope Francis used the word genocide uh, in relation to what's happening. Now, uh, according to AP and a number of other um, outlets, including Reuters, uh, the Vatican is disputing that. Yeah. Uh, and Vatican spokesperson Matteo Bruni, according to the Associated Press, has said he didn't believe that Pope Francis actually used that term, genocide. Yeah. So there is some sort of a dispute here. I mean, it's genocide has a particular definition to it, and to use it carelessly is really irresponsible. It does. So, again, uh, this is going to be one of those situations, I fear, uh, as we have seen from time to time with Pope Francis, where there isn't always going to be clarity exactly what he said. Yeah. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have some additional statements uh, that we can pick up again in the coming days from the Vatican. Well, Matthew, thanks uh, again uh, for helping in this uh, question of Argentina and uh, letting us, making us aware of this present controversy. And uh, have a great Thanksgiving, okay? You too. God bless. <laughs> Dr. Matthew Bunsen, I'm Al Cresta. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Family life is a ministry. We tend to think of ministry as the churchy stuff we do at church, but the word ministry means doing any activity that communicates God's love to another person. When we help our family love and worship God every day at home, we're doing ministry. When our families cherish each other with Christ's love, we're doing ministry. When our family is kind to others, or when we invite others to our home for godly fun and fellowship, or when we try to attend to each other's needs generously and cheerfully, we're doing ministry by doing things that share God's love with others. The ministry of domestic church life is among the most important ministries of all. And discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life. Check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession. And when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he says, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? <laughs> I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. 
EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. In early 2019, on the campus of Ave Maria University, uh, there took place a conference called Aquinas, the Biblical Theologian. It was sponsored by the Aquinas Center in Ave Maria, Florida, and the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology in Steubenville. And uh, conference co-host Matthew Levering was there, and uh, well, learning and uh, working with other scholars on this question of St. Thomas Aquinas as a biblical theologian. Uh, Matthew is the uh, author of many books. Uh, He's also recently The Abuse of Conscience, A Century of Catholic Moral Theology. He also serves as chair of theology at Mundelein Seminary in Illinois. And uh, Dr. Levering is really uh, pointed to as one of those who are helping the Church recover this aspect of St. Thomas Aquinas, and that is his the importance of his biblical commentaries and his own the way, scripture, the role of scripture in his own method. Matthew, good to have you back here. Thanks. Uh, wonderful to be here. Thank you, Al. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, just give us an idea of the status of St. Thomas Aquinas in the thought of the Church. Well, I think it's um, unparalleled. You know, it's uh, he's a common doctor, you know, for, and for good reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me let me begin with, let me begin by mentioning that's an important thing that that I want uh, listeners to understand about Saint Thomas in Scripture. 
because here in the second part of his Summa Theologiae, you know, it has three parts. In the second part alone, he quotes more than half the chapters of the Old Testament. <laughs> he quotes from more than half. That's not the books. He quotes almost all the books of the Old Testament, but more than half the chapters. Wow. Think about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, he, When there was the... the Revival uh, after Leo the Thirteenth, the Thomistic revival after Leo the Thirteenth. They didn't seem to catch the importance of Scripture with Saint Thomas. They were more interested in the philosophical. The Neo Thomas seemed to be more interested in the philosophical dimension. Is that right? Well, that's right. It had to do with the historical context because of um, certain philosophical uh, tendencies had come up in. Vatican one and had had to be condemned coming out of Kant and Hegel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so they were they were really um, going back to St. Thomas uh, for that uh, philosophical uh, sanity so they did emphasize they emphasize the uh, uh, philosophical work yeah. of course of course um, uh, Cardinal Cajetan um, commented on many almost all the books of scripture so he he commented on St. Thomas and on Scripture. Wow. Cajetan did. Mm-hmm. So early on, uh, there was this aware, at the at Reformation era, uh, they were aware of St. Thomas as a biblical commentator? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, how was that lost? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Now, now there, it, it never was entirely lost, and there, of course there's a tradition... Um, of, of amazing biblical commentaries, uh, but uh, going on through the 1700s and 1800s. But the thing is, the, the thing is, though, that as as the biblical uh, commentary, as the genre became more complicated, that essentially through historical research, okay, you know, it became more and more, um, more and more its own discipline, as it were, and separated in a way uh, from from theology. So that was. That was um, something that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did the uh, interest in St. Thomas as a biblical uh, theologian uh, begin being picked up again in a serious way? Well, that's a good... I, it, certainly certainly by um, some French scholars, um, uh, Servet Pinker, uh, who taught at Fribourg in Switzerland, mm-hmm. Uh, but but there were there were others. In fact, in fact, uh, my interest in it came about through my teacher, Father Matthew Lamb. Yeah, and uh, you knew Father Lamb. Yeah, and yeah. He he, tr- he translated one of Aquinas's biblical commentaries as a young monk uh, there in the monastery, in the Trappist monastery. He translated uh, Aquinas on I think it was Ephesians, and so that was that was important to me right off, right off the bat. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did uh, did Thomas see obviously by his by his reliance on half the chapters of the Old Testament uh, in the Summa? Uh, he was aware of the importance of Scripture. So, how did Scripture play into his method of teaching? He was he was principally a teacher, right? Uh, yeah, an ama- amazing teacher, of course, and 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 the um, he quoted half the chapters of the Old Testament, but that's only in the second part of the Summa. So right. first and the third parts, he, he quotes a lot, a lot more. So, so uh, well, the thing is, is that oftentimes when you read the Summa Theologiae, and I'm distinguishing that from the biblical commentaries themselves. Yes. But when you read the Summa, what you're going to find is 
sort of a biblical theology that's built into a particular treatise. So let's say you're reading um, the Summa's questions on baptism. Well, if you go through and you pick out all the different biblical quotes, and they'll be all scattered around, if you pick them out and uh, sort of write them all down, you're going to notice that this is a full and rich biblical theology that he has um, put into his treaties, but in a way that sort of functions as a as like a scaffolding, it sort of undergirds yes. the, um, the, the treaties as he's reflecting upon particular problems that arise when we try to understand what is baptism, what's it, what is its nature, uh, and so on. Um, so, so when you're reading the Summa, then, his brilliance as a biblical theologian kind of serves the purpose of his uh, the other questions that he's dealing with. Uh, he doesn't stop and say, "I'm going to I'm going to give a biblical theology of baptism," right? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very good. And the and the problems that he usually is addressing come from the church fathers, um, issues that they have raised or issues that have been raised in the life of the church. You know, like um, what what does baptism do? What does it accomplish? Mm-hmm. These type of things. Yeah. So he's settling some questions that were uh, irregularities in the tradition. Um, there's a f- one phrase that's been used of him, and that is that he's a uh, master or teacher of the sacred page. Uh, is that common title of his uh, when he was alive? Yeah, that, that's right. It, it is because he that was his um, professional uh, job. You know, that was his main task was to comment on scripture, and so he would he would do that every every day. And and so, of course, we have that's how we have his biblical commentaries, um, the ones that were written down by scribes. Scribes would be in the as it were among the students, and would be writing down uh, his his comments um, oh. as he as he lectured. So his main task was to lecture on scripture, and, and that that was true for all the Parisian masters of theology. Uh, so, how did he approach the text? What was uh, talk to me about the literal sense of the text. Well, it is it's very interesting. I mean, for him, the literal sense um, includes elements that that moderate that you know historical critical uh, versions of the literal sense would would not include. For example, he would include within the literal sense um, a reference to, to Christ in many psalms. But but it is it, it's something to notice though that when he's commenting. On the book of Isaiah, I was I was expecting when I read his commentary on the book of Isaiah, I was expecting it to be, you know, deeply Christological, and it is. But on the other hand, it's very much attuned to the history of Israel and to Israel's own experiences, and to Israel's own history, to the to the um, all all the uh, exile and everything else. Um, he's got it all in in view, so it's very attuned uh, historically. So he he takes the historical sense seriously. Then that's, he's not just seeing types all over the place. That, that's right. He's yeah, absolutely. Of course, the New Testament itself sees sees types all over the place right. in a certain way. But but yes, he takes um, history extremely seriously. Now his understanding of history is deeply, um, in a way, it's the same as ours. But it's also different in a way that I would call a sacramental understanding of history, mm-hmm. because he realizes that 
there's no reason to assume that history doesn't involve God's presence, God's providence, God's action. So history right. is deeply, um, God, God is present in history. It'd be like telling the history of your life, Al, without talking about God's presence and power in your life. Right. It'd be impossible. Right. Right. He, he recognizes that history, that real history, has to is unintelligible really without a sense that God is providently and powerfully present in history. So that's that's um, what I call his participatory or sacramental understanding of history, and that was common to the church fathers and the, the medievals, or, or to John Henry Newman, Saint John Henry Newman, as well. So they wouldn't see. Uh... I mean, let's see how to put this. So they wouldn't see religious history uh, as somehow other than real history. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, you could. They still understood that you could talk about. Um, you can talk about historical events without bringing in God. And 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 we see, we do see, for example, in the book First and Second Samuel, often talk about or or the books of Kings. Um, but but on the other hand, so it's possible to talk about historical events, or just like I would do if I told you what happened during my day today. Right. But but nonetheless, um, God is so powerfully present that it, it's just this is you don't have history unless you have some real sense of of God's action and, and providence and, and power because that's we experience that in our lives and we, and we know it, we know it's true. So did he have a good sense that the same world that Abraham and Isaiah were living in, uh, that that's the world he's living in? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, now he didn't, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't know as much as, as we do today. You know, we, ha- we do have extra, all sorts of extra, um, you know, we have the archaeological digs or sure. whatever. You know, that, so he, wouldn't, he, he didn't know as much as we do today about the world of the past, except for he did understand in a sense, he understood more about it because he was very much on the same wavelength as Isaiah. He yeah. understood that God was present and powerful. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, this is what yeah, you're yeah, referring yeah. to is, about part, is participatory uh, uh, view uh, of Scripture. He's part of that whole historical story. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something that we... Uh, that's something that needs to be recovered uh, by many Catholics today. So, mm-hmm. It's crucial. Yeah. You know, uh, Matthew, uh, hang in with there with me. Got to take a break. We'll come back and continue the conversation with Dr. Matthew Levering. We're looking at St. Thomas Aquinas as a biblical theologian. Again, people often, uh, when they think of St. Thomas, they think of him, uh, well, he's a philosopher. He did all that stuff with Aristotle. Or they say, well, he's really a theologian and catechist. But uh, many times people don't realize how thoroughly invested he was in Scripture. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? 
send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. I was raised a Catholic and went to church every Sunday faithfully. I met a boy and he was non-Catholic, so I left the church to be with him. When I was away from church, I yearned to be home. What brought me back was my longing for the Eucharist. The Eucharist fills me with a spirit that you can't find anywhere else. I have a peace when I walk through the doors of the Catholic Church, like that's where I belong. We invite you to take another look at the Catholic Church. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band, and I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child, but I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. What are we asking God the Father when in the Lord's Prayer we plead, Thy kingdom come? The Catholic Catechism states the kingdom of God lies ahead of us. It is brought near in the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. It is proclaimed throughout the whole gospel. In Christ's death and resurrection, it has come in the Eucharist. It is actually in our midst. When Christ hands it over to the Father, the kingdom will come in glory. St. Cyprian speculates the kingdom of God may even mean Christ himself coming into our lives. In the context of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come is referring primarily to the final coming of the reign of God through Christ's return. Since Pentecost, the coming of God's reign is the work of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The end times in which we are living is the age of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We're taking a look at St. Thomas Aquinas uh, as a biblical theologian. In fact, there's a volume titled Thomas Aquinas, Biblical Theologian, edited by Roger Nutt and Michael Dauphiné. And uh, my guest, Dr. Matthew Levering, has contributed a chapter to it, too, uh, as, again, part of this recovery of St. Thomas as a biblical theologian. Uh, Matthew, when he looks at Scripture, he determines, first of all, what it says— then what it means, then how to apply it. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think you could. Yeah, you could put it. You could put it that way. It's um, it it, it will depend. It will depend upon the the scriptural verse. Okay. You know, and he'll. Yeah. So there will be. You know, he's. But that. But that sounds good. I think what you what you said works. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, you have a chapter in the book here on sin and grace uh, for in the Christian life, according to uh, uh, Saint Paul and also Saint Thomas Aquinas. Um, you know, when you think of the the uh, arguments uh, in history of Christian thought, we think of the arguments over justification during the 16th century. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Cajetan uh, relies on Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, in his uh, uh, arguments in the uh, again 16th century. What what does Saint Thomas bring to the debate that? from Luther's perspective, divided the Church, this question of justification by faith alone? Well, Luther, Luther was, of course, an amazing figure in many ways, and he, he, his whole experience was the experience of sin. You right. know, and, that, and so he really experienced himself as a sinner and in, need of, in desperate need of redemption. And so he, he essentially uh, was raised upon um, textbooks, including one by Gabriel Beale, uh, that were, were Pelagian. And, and Luther uh, realized that, that if, if, if God really was the God of the Pelagians, then uh, Luther himself uh, would have no chance. Yes. You know? and, and so this was, this was his existential um, motivation. So, so now St. Thomas, though, he, he has this incredible understanding of virtue. And, and he draws from Scripture. The the, um, the the various virtues, of course, um, and but that's he also has a wonderful sense of sin and vice. And so, in my essay, I'm I'm using St. Paul's uh, discussion of the Corinthians and St. Thomas's commentary on the Corinthian Church. Mm-hmm. You know, his commentary of um, the different things St. Paul says about the uh, Corinthian Church, just to help us understand ourselves as as sinners yeah as fallen but yet as as in uh called by god's grace and and so on yeah i mean the corinthians are a great example of a messed up <laughs> a messed up yeah, church yeah. <laughs> and yet saint exactly. paul addresses them as saints which I've, i think is often lost on us <laughs> yeah exactly so so I, th- I do think that saint thomas um gets to the to the core there of um you know what what it means to be to be the church and and to be um you know called called by god and 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 so on so that that was the that's the point of my reflection there yeah um i noticed you also deal with the question of spiritual gifts uh anything special in thomas's understanding of these uh spiritual gifts that saint paul talks about in first corinthians 12 through 14 well, that's that's a complicated that's a complicated question, you know, because um, well, in in Saint the whole the whole you, I mean, you get into issues like the issues of um, you know the charismatic gifts, the speaking the speaking in tongues, right, and, and right. so on. And and I don't I mean I don't know I mean in Saint Thomas's time, you know that that it it wasn't um, I'm not sure, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, I I don't really I don't remember in his commentary. Um, I'm not sure I had all my all my questions answered. Yeah, so that was okay yeah. because because he, a lot of it was. I mean, his the basic sense the basic sense of the different the um, the church as 
as the mystical body with the different gifts and the and people given given these different gifts to for the edification of the whole body. You know that that was that's profoundly present in St. Thomas today. Yeah. That aspect. Yeah. So I mean, he. So that's good. So he he had. Um, in his treatment of it, if uh, again, if you recall, so the the fact of gifts that were present, these were gifts that were expressed by the laity, right? Yeah, that, that's true. No, it is. It is true. And then um, now, now I I think the the key thing for me, of course, is the edification, building up the body, but exactly. then also yeah. also just to to. Um, get back to that point that you mentioned just a second ago, which is that St. Thomas was profoundly aware of, of and, and of course St. Paul also, just that the Church is, is um, in a certain sense, the Church is divine, but mm-hmm. in a certain sense, the Church is human. And so we, we really have to have patience, and, and we have to understand that, that look, at um, you know, sinners are involved here, including ourselves. Right. You know, and so St. Thomas really brings that out in a way that is rich, while, while not, um, not in any way um, weakening the sense that the, f- the fullness of the Church, the actual living uh, part of the Church, is um, being sanctified, mm-hmm. you know, is, is being caught up in that grace. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, does, he, uh, does he spend much time... Uh, t- Dealing with the the question of the kingdom, um, and has it been? Did Christ inaugurate the kingdom? Are we awaiting the kingdom? Does he deal with that question of the already and the not yet? Well, he he does he does at a certain place. So, um, and, but oftentimes you're going to find him talking about the kingdom. He talks about it some in his, in his commentary on Matthew, where you would expect to find it. Right. Right. Um, of course, Paul doesn't talk that much about the kingdom, so right. he doesn't. Doesn't um, Saint Thomas doesn't use kingdom language there? Yeah. But then, in his commentary on the sentences, which is Peter Lombard's sentences, he also distinguishes different meanings of of the kingdom. Now, the the important thing, though, um, so I think he he understands all this, but but it is true that if you read biblical scholars today, such as like um, Bram Petrie mm-hmm. or other other wonderful biblical scholars, as they're writing about Jesus and the kingdom and the inauguration of the kingdom, it does it sounds different from reading um, St. Thomas's um, Terra Chapars, where he talks about Christ and, and salvation. Mm-hmm. But so I'm, I'm, I'm working on a project right now that brings those two together. Oh, good. So essentially bringing... bringing um, Brant Petrie and St. Thomas together in a way that in a way that Brant, uh, you know, fully, um, you know, he he loves that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I, <laughs> I you know, are, are his are St. Thomas's commentaries uh, are they are they being published? Well, they are. They are in in Latin English editions. Yeah, um, yeah. This is all being done by the Aquinas Institute. Um, you know, it started off with some guys that um, who were at, at Ave Maria originally, and then then um, at Wyoming Catholic, and and so they're they're still working on it. Um, you know, the different translations are appearing. In fact, I had a I had a a, um, a great priest here who did a licentiate degree with with me, who translated for his licentiate degree. He translated Aquinas' commentary on Jeremiah, the first time it had ever been translated into English. Wow, <laughs> that's great. 
That is great. Yeah, it's uh, a great commentary too. <laughs> yeah, I uh, no, I I I've been surprised. I mean, when I was, you know, I mean, years ago, I didn't uh, really know very much. I still don't know very much really about St. Thomas compared to many others. But I always thought of him as you know this philosopher figure, uh, and then. Uh, Quickly, uh, Bill Reardon disabused my mind of that and demonstrated <laughs> that uh, St. Thomas was, in fact, a, a really a master teacher uh, who thought uh, theologically. But it's only in recent years that I've been trying to, understanding the importance of Scripture uh, in his life. And I'm, it's a, it is amazing to me that that was, um, that that was kind of overlooked uh, as people had this Thomistic revival in the 19th, in the, well, the 20th century primarily. Um, and I really, I got your point earlier that they were answering different questions because of the the uh, philosophical climate that they had to deal with. Uh, but Yeah, they were, but it, it, still, it still would have been great. And, and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, in addition to Father Lamb, I should, I should mention that what what happened to me? I was a master's student at Duke, and I, and Tim Gray, now now the president of the Augustine Institute, got yeah. a hold of me. <laughs> and so Tim was there. Tim was there getting a advanced degree at at Duke, and he he got a hold of me, and he and Michael Dauphiné and I became a really close friends. And so Tim said, "Look, we got to read Aquinas, and we got to read Scripture." And Tim had gotten this from from Scott Hahn. Of course, <laughs> Tim was just he was fresh from Steubenville. Yeah. So that was for me. That was very uh, oh, inspirational. And <laughs> now that's wonderful. That's just wonderful. Uh, so we should expect over the next few years more and more uh, emphasis on Saint Thomas as a, a biblical thinker. Absolutely, absolutely. Because um, Scripture is the soul of theology, and and so this is. Um, and now Saint Thomas is a, is a deeply biblical thinker, and. And the key, though, is that in order to, as you're reading along in Scripture, you you read these, um, you might read a statement about God repenting, or you you run into these questions that you have. That, yes. You know what kind, You know what is this God um, who is doing this or that, and and so on, and and so these questions, um, you you come from Scripture, and then you also engage these these questions. Aquinas is really perfect for that. He helps you um, engage the questions that arise out of Scripture. Yeah. And and so he's he then he you sort of come from scripture, enter into the reflection, and then go back into scripture. Yeah, yeah. kind of a circular a circular movement uh, with his commentaries. Well, I I noticed in one of the essays in this uh, volume, Thomas Aquinas, biblical theologian, that First uh, Timothy uh, one one, uh, where Paul greets Timothy, he gives him wishes for grace, mercy, and peace. And Thomas asks why three gifts are mentioned there when his other epistles, uh, Paul wishes only two gifts for the recipients, you know, grace and peace. And I just think, you know, that's a, that's a marvelous detail to seize upon. And then St. Thomas answers that uh, it's because of the need uh, uh, Timothy has in his office. He needs mercy, given that uh, prelates need more mercy. And I thought that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's great. That is great. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna be doing a co- conference um, next year, an international conference on Saint Thomas, his commentary on Hebrews. Wow. So that's gonna be a lot of fun. And, and of course, Hebrews has uh, so much um, 
talk about theology. Hebrews is so intensely theological and, and difficult. Very yes. Difficult, you know. Yeah, and, and um, again, lots so. of emphasis on the Old Testament system, sacrificial system, and the superiority exactly. of Christ. Where is that going to be? Uh, that'll be here at Mundelein. It'll be at Mundelein, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next year, we'll have to just make sure we have that. On. Do you have dates for it yet? Yeah, it's uh, September, so what is it, September 2, 2nd to 4th. Okay, very good. We'll yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. It will. We got we got Father Thomas Joseph White and various various scholars of all, um, all sorts of people. It's, it's a good, good group. Great. Uh, for people who want to follow through and learn a little bit more about St. Thomas as a, a, a student of Scripture, as a teacher of Scripture, uh, any place in particular they should go? Well, I think the first the first place is probably to Jean-Pierre Terrell's book, Thomas Aquinas, Spiritual Master. Yeah. That, that's a very important book. Yeah, um, yeah very wonderful book. Yeah. So that'll, that'll give him a sense. Of, that's a good starting point, I think. Hey, Jean-Pierre Terrell, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, Spiritual Master. Very yeah. good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Matthew. Good being with you, and I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Hey, wonderful. Thanks, Al. <laughs> Dr. Matthew Levering, again, uh, really one of the fig- chief figures in helping recover uh, St. Thomas Aquinas as a biblical theologian. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. He's not on drugs. Parents will come into my office and describe a litany of trouble about this long. Then they'll say this, I'm giving you the wrong impression. Overall, he's a pretty good kid. How so? Well, he's not on drugs or anything like that. One of the new moral high bars out there, he's not on drugs. You want to raise a child not with the absence of pathology, but with the presence of virtue. She's miserable with me, but she treats everybody else great. Again, not the absence of bad behavior, but the presence of good behavior. He's not on drugs? (laughs) It's a rationale. May provide some comfort. It's not a path to virtue. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom webinar. That's catholichom webinar. See you there. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I want to remind you that um, 
there is an outstanding book, Thomas Aquinas, Biblical Theologian. It's by our friend, Dr. Roger Nutt of uh, Ave Maria University in Ave Maria, Florida. And that book's available. It's in our online bookstore. And uh, if you get a chance, I mean, if, if you're inclined, it, it's fun to take a look at some of Thomas Aquinas's commentary uh, on biblical books. Uh, I've not done a lot of it myself, but I've done some of it. And it's just interesting to read a writer from a distant century and how they deal with the text. And you're surprised at what you share and the insights he has that you see. But then there's also ways of interpreting the text that we're unfamiliar with. So I recommend picking up uh, Dr. Roger Nutt's book, uh, Thomas Aquinas, Biblical Theologian. And then he's editor of it, actually, and there are a number of essays there. Coming up next hour, Peggy Stanton joins us with her memories of reporting on the JFK assassination 60 years ago today. And then Dr. Peter Crave looks at the thought of three men with very different points of view. JFK, a humanist, C.S. Lewis, a Christian, and Aldous Huxley, a pantheist. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanking you for joining me. Um, We are, of course, one day before Thanksgiving, and I want to take a moment here uh, to talk about our friends at Divine Mercy Radio in Kansas and our friends at the Guadalupe Radio Network, because they need to hear from you next week. Uh, Divine Mercy Radio airing their annual fall carathon, and Guadalupe Radio airing their Christmas charathon. It'll be next Tuesday through Friday. So if you're listening in Kansas on Divine Mercy Radio or on any of the 45 Guadalupe stations serving Texas, New Mexico, Kansas, Washington, D.C., Virginia, Alabama, or Florida. Please support your local Catholic radio station, your EWTN Global Catholic radio station. All right, let me tell you where we're going in this hour. The Kennedy assassination 60 years ago today. Peggy Stanton, our friend, was a young reporter working in Milwaukee, the early stages of her career. I've asked Peggy just to remember that day with us. And again, I pointed out in the first segment, or the first, uh, the open to the first hour of today's program, that, look, look if you're above the age of reason, uh, age-wise, you probably remember that day. And so I thought it would be interesting to hear Peggy, who was working as a journalist at the time, how she understood what was happening. And then we're going to be joined by Dr. Peter Kraft. He... Um, is, uh, as you know, an incredibly prolific author, over 75 books. One of his most popular was one called Between Heaven and Hell. And November 22nd, 1963, saw the deaths of three of the most influential men of the 20th century. You've got JFK, whose assassination dominated the headlines that day. But you also have the death of C.S. Lewis that day and Aldous Huxley. Huxley was the author of Brave New World, another book called The Doors of Perception, which examined the use of psychedelics in creating pseudo-mystical experiences. 
And you have three different points of view here. Uh, Kennedy, though he was a Catholic, operated very much as a secular humanist. C.S. Lewis was clearly the most effective Christian apologist of the 20th century, maybe the 21st, we'll see. And Aldous Huxley was a champion of what you might call pantheism, or what we now call New Age mysticism. And Peter shows us how different those points of view are. But first, let's get the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Giravi Maria Radio News for Wednesday, November 22nd. It's the feast of St. Cecilia. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avimaria.edu. Israel and Hamas have agreed to a ceasefire in Gaza to allow hostages to be released and to let in aid. The deal would see at least 50 hostages captured by the militant Palestinian group released in exchange for 150 Palestinians held by Israel. In Tel Aviv, NBC News' Keir Simmons says there is a substantial agreement on humanitarian aid. Three to four hundred trucks are being talked about, including fuel. And as we know, that was a sticking point, an issue, particularly for the Israelis. The truce is supposed to last for at least four days. Today marks 60 years since the assassination of former President John F. Kennedy. Good evening. The essential facts are these. President Kennedy was murdered in Dallas, Texas. He was shot by a sniper hiding in a building near his parade route. He was dead within an hour. Lyndon Johnson is president of the United States. Peggy Stanton was working as a reporter that day. She joined us right after the news break with her own memories. Sam Altman is returning as the CEO of OpenAI. Altman was fired unexpectedly last Friday as the head of the chat GPT company, shocking the tech industry. The movement triggered hundreds of open AI employees to sign a letter threatening to leave and join Altman at Microsoft unless the company's board members resigned. And most Americans are hoping to avoid politics at the Thanksgiving dinner table. A Quinnipiac University national poll shows that more than 60 percent of Americans would rather not talk about the subject. On the other hand, just under three in every 10 said they look forward to discussing politics this holiday. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk. I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today's the 60th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. And uh, again, as I said earlier, those of us who are above the age of reason probably remember that day. Uh, my guest is our friend Peggy Stanton. Um, she was working in Milwaukee at the time in the early stages of her journalistic career. And uh, as you know, Peggy is the author of From the White House to the White Cross, an outstanding memoir. Uh, she's a dame of the Order of Malta, was ABC News' first female Washington correspondent, and has hosted many programs on Ave Maria Radio, including the Malta Minute with the Catechism. Uh, her newest book, in fact, is called The Order of Malta, Minutes with the Catechism. Peggy, good to have you. Thank you, Al. Good to be back. Well, this, you know, like I said, just about every, this is one of those, the Kennedy assassination is one of those days which mm -hmm. is fixed almost universally in America's memory. Uh, right. it, it's up there with, of course, 9-11 and the Challenger disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, 
I'll share what I was doing that day, yeah, okay. but you're the more interesting one, because you were... Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you had an adult, an adult's mind. I was still an adolescent. So <laughs> Don't rub it in now. <laughs> so uh, you were a, a doing I work. hope nobody does the math out there. <laughs> <laughs> they always do, unfortunately. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you were in Milwaukee, I guess, huh? I was actually I had uh, uh, literally just graduated from college and and uh, I was uh, it was my very first newsroom job and the um, the the um, news director and I were drove up to Ripon, Wisconsin because we were going to do a story on uh, it was either a Catholic hospital or a Catholic uh, school. <clears throat> And um, am I interrupting? You were going to tell your story first, and you want me to tell no, no. mine? Okay. You tell yours. Yours, yours will be more interesting than mine. Mine's very short. <laughs> since you were just an adolescent. Yeah, since I was very short. Right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we were having lunch with the nuns, and um, the one of the nuns came into the dining room, and she said, "The president's been shot." And, of course, me, you know, young neophyte coming out of college, I, I burst out with, I, you were so stunned, I burst out with, you're kidding! <laughs> and typical non-response, she looks at me very sternly and says, would I kid about something like that? <laughs> and so we got in the car and drove back to uh, Milwaukee right away because uh, obviously the news director, uh, even more than me, had to be in the newsroom. And I, you know, it just seems as if we spent the entire <laughs> weekend in the newsroom. I mean, you were just yeah. glued to the television set and. I remember um, it was really, it was the death of JFK, but it was the launching of Dan Rather, because he was a, corresp a local correspondent in Dallas. Yes, yes, and, that's right. Yeah, and he, he was on the air all the time. And, of course, later on he came to Washington, was at CBS, and, and uh, you know, we covered some stories together. But I, I vividly, rem I can still re almost see him on the TV screen. Yeah. You know. Yeah. He, uh, um, and it was just, um, you're right, everybody remembers exactly what they were doing at the time. And I only, I never really, I shook hands with JFK when he came to Marquette University campus. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, never had a conversation or an interview with him. Uh, but he was, um, he was far better looking in person. Uh, really? He was, yeah. He <laughs> was, well, he certainly was that day. I mean, he, he was very tan and he had something that you never noticed on television. He had brilliant blue eyes. Yeah. Yeah. His eyes almost disappeared sometimes on television. Of course, it was a lot of black and white in those days. But then, you know, as I, when I came to Washington and, and just a couple of years later, and um, I covered his brother, uh, Robert Kennedy, and got to know him quite well. And, and um, I remember him asking me, uh, one day at his, you know, his house, he and Ethel gave a um, party for 
the pre uh, a few of us in the press corps and mm -hmm. and we were just sitting around the pool and I remember him being in the pool and I couldn't swim because I had a, an assignment afterwards so mine were just dangling my feet <laughs> in the pool and he asked me if I had bred uh, there were believe it or not then uh, Al there was only one book that had come out I think on JFK and it was by his personal secretary and it was you know and so um, Bobby said well what did you think of it and I said well <laughs> I didn't really like it all that much because I didn't think that someone who was that uh, privy to everything about a president or a personality should write write about it and he I remember him saying well I suppose he said he never got to see it I remember him saying that he said um, I, I thought I was going to see it before it was you know finally in print but I never did until mm. it just came I saw it maybe after it was published and he said uh, oh well he said I suppose lots and lots of books will be written and I thought, you know, are you looking back on that? You say, what an understatement. Yes, yeah. It, it, it was your objection to the book that it revealed personal details that were unnecessary or that you thought that the fellow's point of view was too friendly to the president, too much of a uh, an insider? I think that was it. I, there wasn't, it wasn't that she revealed anything scandalous about him, uh, but but I just felt that, um, you know, if 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 you had someone working very closely with you, wouldn't you want to have given them permission to to write about it? What it oh, was yeah. like being day to day with you? Sure. Yes, I would. And that's that's kind of. The I would way. expect that kind of respect from my staff. Yeah, yeah, and that was kind of. Uh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, my objection to it. You mentioned Dan Rather. Um, looking here at the chronology, and uh, twelve forty, people are watching as the world turns on CBS, and the first national television report of the shooting comes on. It's Walter Cronkite. Uh, mentioning that the president has been shot. Yeah. At 12.45, Dan Rather of CBS calls Parkland Memorial Hospital. A doctor tells him he believes Kennedy is dead. And I assume, rather than got the information to Walter Cronkite. Probably did, because uh, Dan, I'm sure, was working with a CBS affiliate. Yeah. And uh, as I was in Milwaukee. I mean, we almost had parallel kind of jobs, mm -hmm. uh, and um, so so I'm sure he Dan probably did get the word yeah. to um, yeah. Walter Cronkite. And did you know that um, that uh, JFK did get the last rights? Yes, I I did uh, I did I, I did understand that, and I there was. Uh, there was some question about whether uh, last rites could be given if he was already dead, and and I, I don't canonically. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, the sacraments are for the living, not for the dead. I think, yeah, I think. I maybe I'm wrong, but I think that I could uh, that 
he was still alive. Okay. I mean, yeah. Well, I'm not, yes, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that the priests who were there did anything wrong. I don't know. Mm. I mean, mm. they were the people on hand. They're the ones who knew, right, <laughs> who knew right. what was appropriate and what wasn't appropriate. But, but um, I, yeah. yeah. Um, there's another story that, uh, uh, that ties into this. Yeah, go ahead. And it is... Uh, um, when uh, Nixon and Kennedy debated, it was, you were an adolescent, so you, were, <laughs> you didn't pay attention. It really became an historic debate because um, we hadn't had TV debates right. uh, with presidential candidates. And um, Nixon, up to that point, had been really the favored uh, to win the election. Sure, he former was vice, vice president. president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kennedy was just a a young senator, and he hadn't really made any mark at all as a senator. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Nixon had been on, uh, he'd been quite sick and actually been hospitalized. And so on television, uh, he sadly, for his sake, he, for, he turned down makeup. So he looked gaunt and pale and kind of nervous and... JFK, you know, was Palm Beach tanned and vigorous and confident, and um, so that on the radio, um, listeners thought Nixon was the winner, and on TV, viewers thought JFK was the got the prize. So um, the very next day, uh, JFK came to Bill's hometown, uh, Painesville, Ohio. And he stayed at a hotel called the Deluxe Motel. Mm -hmm. And um, Bill said it was very obvious that the tide had was turning because the crowds were big and they were enthusiastic and so forth. But anyway, the night um, before he made his speech, he left a, a, a prayer on, on his nightstand. Hmm. And uh, the owner, I think it was the daughter of the owner, found the prayer and decided to keep it as a souvenir. And so, you know, when the Secret Service called to ask if they found the prayer, because the senator, you know, always said it every night before going to bed um, and, and, you know, really wanted it. And um, the girl who decided to keep it as a souvenir gave it, and sadly, the answer was no. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And as I recall, I wrote a column about it, um, Al, and I'm sorry that uh, I looked all through my too many columns, um, and, and I didn't find it, but uh, uh, the prayer asked for forgiveness for daily faults and omissions and had some kind of promise of remission of sins. Wow. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but it is good. That's a good uh, good thing to know. That yeah. Kennedy was praying for remission of sins. Father Benedict Rochelle. There are legitimate differences of opinion in any religion. There are differences of opinion in Catholicism. But in Catholicism, you expect that people will take the teaching of its supreme authority seriously. To go diametrically opposed to those teachings is to not be a Catholic. Someone in the name of Catholicism is sponsoring the destruction of human life. 
lives of unborn children. And he got the name Catholic on the door. The highest authority in Catholicism and the encyclical Humanae Vitae, Evangelium Vitae, is absolutely clear that no Catholic can support abortion and that Catholics are responsible to take serious action against legalized abortion. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. When we say, Thy will be done as it is in heaven, what are we asking of our Father? The Catholic Catechism explains that God desires for all men to be saved and to come to know the truth. He does not wish anyone to perish. In His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His human will, the will of the Father has been perfectly fulfilled once for all. The Lord made this clear on entering public ministry. I have come to do your will, O God. Only Jesus can say, I always do what is pleasing to him, even unto death, as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Thus we ask our Father to unite our will to his Son's in order to fulfill the Father's will. By prayer, we can discern God's will and receive the endurance to carry it out. Jesus taught that one enters the kingdom of God not by speaking only words, but by doing the will of his Father in heaven. I'm Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. He is honored by the church as a saint with the title of the angelic doctor. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a basic textbook for young theology students that became the church's most famous guide to the faith, the Summa Theologica. It helped him earn the title doctor of the church. He died in 1274. For more about the doctors of the church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org.
afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. On November 22nd, 1963, three great men died within a few hours of each other. Uh, only one death was noted by the public, and that was, of course, the death of the assassinated President of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. But also that day was the death of the 20th century's greatest Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis, and one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century, Aldous Huxley, who gave us Brave New World, for instance, which all of us probably had to read in high school or college at one time or other. So these men died within a few hours of each other, November 22nd, 1963. All three of them believed in different ways that death wasn't the end of human life. They All three believed that there was some kind of immortality. Now suppose they were right. And suppose they had the chance to meet after death. They met somewhere between heaven and hell. What would the conversation sound like? Well, that was imagined by Dr. Peter Kraft back in 1982. Well, that was the year of the book's publication. And uh, he noted that this would have been part of the great conversation that's been going on for millennia. Because these three men represented the three most influential philosophies of life in at least Western history. And I, I think you can even stretch that to say the three philosophies of life in human history. You had uh, ancient Christian theism at C.S. Lewis. You had modern Western humanism, that would be Kennedy, and you had ancient Eastern pantheism, and that was Aldous Huxley. Huxley was an unusual fellow. Uh, he resented Christianity early on in his life. He grew to have greater appreciation for it as he got older, but never, to my knowledge, uh, came on board uh, to be a Christian. He got involved in Eastern religions and got involved in using uh, psychedelic drugs, not for uh, recreational purposes, but for, you might call it, soul travel, uh, to create what I would call pseudo-mystical experiences. And he, uh, he took that quite seriously, and even, in fact, uh, as the story goes, at the time of his passing, uh, was actually given LSD to experience, I don't know, an expanded consciousness at the moment of death. But these were three men who represented very distinctive ways of life and even maybe more distinctive philosophies of life. Dr. Peter Kraft uh, thought that uh, what would it be like if they had met between heaven and hell and engaged in a conversation about the things that matter most. With me right now is Dr. Peter Kraft, professor of philosophy at Boston College. He's the author of more than 75 books, including the uh, Handbook of Christian Apologetics, Recently, he's uh, given us Letters to an Atheist, Wrestling with Faith, and also Socrates meets Freud, the father of philosophy meets the father of psychology. And we're looking back at, uh, I think, maybe the book that kind of put him on the map back in 1982, Between Heaven and Hell. And Dr. Crave, good to have you back. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you, Al. Is the, is the book Between Heaven and Hell, my memory is that this is the book that really gave you lots of public notice. Well, I don't notice much about noticing, but uh, <laughs> it, it has sold very well. It's been in print for uh, about 30 years. Yeah, yeah. No, I and remember. that's strange, because I usually take about six months to write a book. I wrote that one in three days. Is that so? So this it one really wrote can... itself. Wow. Wow. I did, not, I did not realize that. I remember its popularity, though, because I was in bookselling. I was a Christian bookseller at the time. I was part of a chain of bookstores called Logos Bookstores. And this was an exceedingly popular book among college students uh, in East Lansing, Michigan, where I was, and then in Ann Arbor. 
Well, it's I a guess fun book. That's why it is. It is a fun book. And tell us the conception of it. When did it hit you? When did it strike you? This would be a good idea. Well, I had written an essay on three different worldviews, uh, Christian theism and modern Western secularism and uh, Eastern Buddhist mysticism, uh, and it was kind of dull, uh, although important. And I realized that Lewis had died on the same day as John F. Kennedy, uh, but then I suddenly discovered that Aldous Huxley had died almost at the same hour as those two, <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon. And I thought, these three guys represent these three points of view. So what would a conversation be like in the next world? So once, once the thought appeared, uh, it, it sort of took over and, and wrote itself. <laughs> That's, that is wonderful. I, just a little historical curiosity here. Is it, do you know if it's true that Huxley re, did take LSD? Uh, on oh, his yeah, he died, he died during a bad LSD trip. Okay. Uh, he, he was experimenting with it. Uh. Uh, he, he and Alan Watts had together uh, made the claim that uh, um, drug mysticism and religious mysticism are essentially the same thing. Yes. So uh, uh. Uh, he died in his fake mystical experience, mm. and of course Kennedy died while he was doing his political thing, yeah. and Lewis died of uh, uh, a bone disease that apparently had something to do with his power to take away his wife's pain when she had bone cancer in the hospital. You know, there was tell, a real transfer there. Tell people about that, because that's a story uh, in Lewis's life. It was very influential in his own thinking. This was this coincidence idea yes, that, he that he inherited from Charles, Charles Williams. Williams. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, he thought, and many of the mystics uh, say the same thing, that uh, we actually participate in Christ's work of, of, of atonement, that is, of uh, not saving people's souls from hell, but, but sharing their pain. We can share not just their, their physical uh, traumas, but their emotional traumas, too, and that makes a difference. That actually removes uh, the emotional pain from somebody else when you feel it, just as it removes the suitcase from their hands if you take it away. Mm -hmm. uh, and Williams apparently practiced that in his own life, and Lewis did uh, in hospital when his wife, who was dying of a very painful cancer uh, in her legs, uh, had her hands uh, put on her legs by, by Lewis, and Lewis felt the pain she didn't. Wow. And uh, that spared her life for a number of years, right? Well, whether it was that that spared her life or not is not clear, okay. but there was a remarkable remission, so great that they took a trip to Greece together. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, a few years later, Lewis himself passed on and yeah. uh, from, from a uh, bone disease. Fascinating. Uh, what, it, what, it, what, it is, I always thought this was a great uh, trilogue that you put together here. You have uh, Lewis uh, meeting Kennedy. Uh, does Lewis look upon Kennedy as a believer in the book? That's ambiguous, and Kennedy himself is ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. And I interpret him in a rather dark way, which may or may not be historically accurate, but it fits my threefold pattern better. That is, Kennedy <laughs> is a secular humanist with a vague Catholic uh, uh, overtone. Yep. Uh, we we call them Kennedy Catholics in Massachusetts. You know, a lot <laughs> of Kennedy right. Catholics, yeah. no Catholic Kennedys. <laughs> the women are genuinely Catholic, but the men are usually not. <laughs> I think Robert was probably the closest, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I had Robert's uh, son in class. He was a real saint. He was a wonderful guy. Oh, that's good. Um, and what is Lewis's approach to Kennedy? What does he What does he try to get him going with first? Well, they they argue about the usual issues between the traditionalist and the modernist. Uh, is there objective truth, and uh, uh, is there any place for authority in religion, and and so on? And then they get onto who Jesus is. And for Kennedy, he's just uh, the man for others, the ideal human being. Uh, and for Lewis, of course, he's he's God incarnate. And Kennedy thinks that's rather superstitious. Uh, so Lewis offers a rational argument for it. And Kennedy's very surprised that that distinctive doctrine, that very hard thing to believe, that uh, amazing claim that this flesh and blood human being who popped out of his mother's womb and uh, uh, gets tired and hungry just like we do and can die, in fact did, uh, that that's Almighty God. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, he's amazed that Lewis has an argument for it, which he can't refute. Uh, the argument's very simple. He claimed to be God, and he either is or he isn't. And if he isn't, then a man who claims to be God and isn't is either insane or he's a blaspheming liar. <laughs> and his character just makes either of those two theories impossible mm -hmm. once you get to meet him. Is Huxley, does Huxley come along and, and argue that uh, Jesus never claimed to be God? Huxley argues two things. First, he argues the uh, uh, the Hindu notion that, of course, Jesus is God, but all of us are, so it's oh, no yes. big deal. Right, right. Uh, you know, pantheist mysticism. Uh, and then he takes another tack and says, well, the New Testament says he claimed to be God, but if he never made that claim, then he's just a, a good human being. Uh, and the Church invented the claim. Mm -hmm. uh, the texts lie. And Lewis refutes both of those, uh, too. So there's really two different challenges to the faith, one from Western secularism and the other from Eastern mysticism. Let's take the one uh, on the textual uh, question first. How does Lewis respond to the idea that the texts aren't to be trusted? Well, Lewis is a, a, a lover of literature and a great writer, uh, and he loves especially myths. And the standard line about the text being unreliable is that they're just mythological, right. that uh, the supernatural Jesus was invented by the early church. Uh, and Lewis says but the texts don't have the style of myth. Mm -hmm. They have the style of eyewitness description. Right. Uh, so they're either deliberate lies or, or they're truth. But they can't be this, this in-between thing. Furthermore, what would, what would motivate the people to make this myth? Uh, if Jesus wasn't God, somebody invented the claim that he was. And for hundreds of years, Christians got uh, tortured and executed for believing that claim. Mm -hmm. Liars don't usually die for their lie. Yeah. I mean, martyrdom doesn't prove truth, but it certainly proves sincerity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, does he uh, does he argue about uh, the development of legend and how long it takes for legends to take hold versus historical narrative? Yeah, other other religions often divinize their founders. For instance, there's a tradition in Buddhism that Buddha is a god, although that's not Orthodox Buddhism. And there's plenty of pagan legends about uh, heroes becoming semi-divine. But to believe that, you have to have enough of a time period lapse between the death of the hero and the beginning of the legend right. that people will believe it. Mm -hmm. So if people are still alive who knew the hero, 
uh, and knew he was only a human being who never claimed to be God, uh, they would raise their voices in protest, especially uh, in Israel, where Jews are much more sensitive to the transcendence of God than anybody else. And for a, a, a man to claim to be God in India is no big deal. Congratulations! You finally found out we're all God. <laughs> but, but to say that in a in a uh, Jewish culture would would invite the charge of blasphemy. There's an immediate, uh, yeah, immediate uh, correction uh, to the claim. I'll hold it there, uh, Dr. Crave. We'll come back, continue conversation. My guest, Dr. Peter Crave, between heaven and hell, a dialogue somewhere between death with John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley, who all died November 22nd, 1963. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Catholic family life is a liturgy. Liturgy is a word that means a public act of worship. And for Catholics, liturgy is an act of worship established by God and intended to heal the damage that sin does to our relationships with Him and each other. For instance, the liturgy of the Eucharist is God's way of restoring communion with Him and making communion with others possible. Well, when we bring that Eucharistic grace home by looking for little ways we can share Christ's sacrificial love with our family each day, we celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, the liturgy that helps God heal the damage sin tries to do in our homes, at the very root of human relationships. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. 
John 6, verses uh, 48 to 58. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread, meaning me. This is the bread, which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh, at which the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're scandalized by this. How is it that we're not? How is it that we just hear this and go, Oh yeah, I know that passage. They're just outraged and at least perplexed. Sane people, inspired teachers, wise men, prophets don't say things like this. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. On November 22nd, 1963, three great men uh, passed uh, beyond this world to death. John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, Aldous Huxley. My guest, Dr. Peter Kreeft, uh, took that moment and uh, sketched a dialogue between them called Between Heaven and Hell, published in 1982, still in print today, and really uh, stimulating the imagination of, of many, many, many people, getting people to think about the things that matter most. Dr. Kreeft has uh, written uh, 75 plus books in a wide range of fields. He's written a logic textbook, he's written literary criticism. He's done uh, a digest of uh, St. Thomas's Summa. Uh, uh, also, he's done uh, a version of Pascal's Pensees, uh, a number of dramatic dialogues, uh, Socrates Meets Jesus, The Unaborted Socrates, books on heaven, the nature of angels, nature of suffering, prayer. You've done a lot of writing, and uh, I was intrigued in our first segment when you said you did Between Heaven and Hell in three days, and most of the time it takes you six months to write a book. Were you were you aware of any special superintendents, providential superintendents, when you were writing Between Heaven and Hell? Providence, yes. Superintendents, no. <laughs> it wasn't a mystical experience. Okay. But uh, it, the, the fit was so perfect that uh, I, I, I sort of felt the angels moving the scenery around or the chess yeah. pieces on the board. In fact, I sent the manuscript off to Christopher Derrick, who was a student of Lewis's yeah. and uh, an author of some very good books, uh, whom I had met in England, and he uh, he phoned me back and he said, uh, I just read your manuscript. I am insanely jealous. This is exactly the book I was planning to write, but you got there first. <laughs> Yes, I, I remember um, Derek had written a book about uh, sex and the sacred, I think, that I, I came across. That book, by the way, is the most uh, unappreciated book that I know. Uh, I teach a course on philosophy of human sexuality, and I keep trying to get the students to read that book, and nobody gets it. <laughs> Interesting. Nobody gets very it. good. The, 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 main, the point is very simple: that there is this category of the sacred, and sex fits under it. Yeah. And they either don't understand the sacred at all, or they don't understand how sex is sacred. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because you, you, oftentimes people talk about you know the the goddess of sexuality, or sex is a, a an imperious uh, uh, divinity in our own day. But it's it's it isn't taken that seriously, huh? The awe, the wonder that's gone. Yeah. It's got to be it's, studied scientifically. It's, it's like the sneeze in the sacred. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> People say, God bless you, and they don't really read it. 
<laughs> Taking a look at this uh, trilogue between Kennedy, Lewis, and Huxley that Dr. Peter Kraft outlines uh, so beautifully in Between Heaven and Hell. When, what is Huxley, uh, this, this idea that we are all gods that Huxley represents, uh, the, the pantheism, the ancient Hindu teaching, mm-hmm. Eastern, Southeast Asian teaching, and also is very New Agey too. I've always wondered, uh, how how does one sustain that, uh, especially as you get older? When you're younger, you can have a lot of these strange contradictions in your head. But, I mean, if I'm God and you're God, what happens when we disagree? And so somebody like Huxley, who certainly was no fool, uh, how does he live with that? Well, there's a lot of mystics who believe that, and they're not just flaky New Age people. Right. There is there is a mystical experience where the boundaries of your individual ego seem to pass away. Uh, Martin Buber, uh, the great Jewish rabbi who mm-hmm. wrote I and Thou, has, I think, the right take on that. He said it's a genuine experience, but it's inherently uh, illusory or, or, or uh, misleading, because... Uh, what it shows is that you're you're more than just the self that knows these things today and those things tomorrow, the changing empirical self of, of scientific psychology. You're more than that. And if you don't know the true God, you'll say, well, that's the highest thing. You're God. Hmm. But if you do know the true God, you know that you're only a finite creature compared with God. But you're sort of like God to the world, because the whole world exists in your consciousness. So you've got, there's some kind of uh, There's a not, genuine experience behind it, but the theological misinterpretation of it. Yeah. Does in that in Buber's understanding of it, does the um, does the whole I thou thing break down entirely? Yes. There's no distinction between I and thou in the mystical experience, okay. and that's that's its fundamental deception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Think of think of a, a a mirror with a lot of images in it. Right. And at first, you see your image in the mirror together with other images. So you think you're just one individual in the world together with other individual people and animals and things. And then you realize you're the mirror, huh. and that you can reflect and know all these people and things. Uh, but what you forget is that each of us, although he's a mirror with regard to the world, uh, is reflected in God's mirror. Okay. In other words, you're universal with regard to the world, but we're particular in regard to God, and that's the the, the transcendent thou. Do you do you retain your own sense of particularity though in the experience? Is there is there in the mystical experience you don't, or at least not in the Eastern mystical experience. Okay. okay. That's that's the fundamental difference. Okay. Uh, the, the Between most, the East the and the West. I ever read about mysticism is Father Thomas Dubay's The Fire Within. Yes, okay. Where he takes St. John of the Cross and, and St. Catherine as the uh, the great mystical teachers of the West. And one of the clearest differences between Eastern and Western mysticism is exactly there. Your individuality is transformed and enhanced in Western mysticism. It's dismissed as an illusion in Eastern mysticism. Hmm. So the, the, you lose the sense of being a creature. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Huxley, uh, there's a famous phrase that circulated in, in apologetic circles years ago. I've, I've forgotten the exact reference, but it's a passage in which Aldous Huxley says that um, he wanted Christianity to be false because he recognized that it put some restraint upon his own uh, immoral inclinations. Uh, does he argue that at all? I think all? that was his brother. Oh, uh, Julius? Julian. Julian Huxley. Who was okay. defending Darwinianism. Okay. Somebody asked him on a radio interview why you and all your friends immediately uh, loved the origin of species, even though nobody read it. And he said, well, it got rid of God. Uh, We we, we were worried about this argument from design, uh, and uh, if you believe in natural selection, there's no design. Uh, And then the interviewer said, well, why did you have to get rid of God? And Huxley said, because he was notoriously inconvenient to our sex life. Yes, okay, that's that's the passage I'm thinking of. Okay. Um, Did did Aldous, uh, was the younger brother, wasn't he? And uh, he was... He was a novelist who wrote Brave New World. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is uh, a great classic, by it, the way. It is. I, I, I agree. Was well, he Fenix. equally opposed to Christianity? He thought all religions were one. Just as all people were one in God, so all religions dissolve into one in mystical experience. He gave the famous uh, image of uh, the Hawaiian Islands as islands that pop above the water, and from the standpoint of looking at them horizontally above the water, they're all different. Mm -hmm. But once you're a diver and go down in the water, you realize they're the same sea continent underneath. Mm -hmm. So a mystic sees that all religions are one, Mm -hmm. supposedly. Yeah, yeah. did, did does he so he would see Jesus then as what the great guru the great uh, avatar one of the great gurus yeah mm-hmm. uh, the Hindus call him an avatar a kind of uh, a clearer appearance of God than other people but it's just a matter of degree so when Jesus says um, uh, before Abraham was I am that is simply the I am that speaks in all of us yes but here's the rub. Uh, in Eastern mysticism, the I is the fundamental illusion, yes, whereas right. in Judaism and Christianity, yeah. it's the nature of ultimate reality. It's God's own name for himself. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Very good. Uh, it's also interesting to note the Jews at the time when Jesus did say that didn't understand that he was just saying they were all God. Like they picked up stones to throw at him. Yeah, they were smarter than modern scholars. <laughs> Do you use? I'm, I've always wondered if you've used this book in any of your classes. Oh yeah, yep. yeah. How do how do students respond? Well, I've never had a refutation of it. Uh, <laughs> they they like it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's challenging. It doesn't automatically make converts. Although some people have said to me this uh, has made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember one hard-headed atheist saying that uh, uh, he thought that Christianity was just foolishness. He still doesn't believe it, but now he knows it's not foolishness. <laughs> well, that's a big step. That's a big that's step. A step. Uh, you've taught... Are you still teaching in Boston College? Oh, yeah. After all these years. Okay. Just I always ask people who have been teaching college students for a long time this question. Is there any... Is there one thing, significant difference, between college students today, especially undergraduates today, and undergraduates, say, 30 years ago? Well, I have to answer that question on two levels. On on the deepest level, I'm hardly an expert, but I get the sense that they're much more searching, much more open-minded, much more evangelizable today. Okay. Uh, On the the 
clear intellectual level, uh, the sharpest difference is that they, they can't read, especially anything poetic. They don't have a sense of analogy. Wow. They think like computers. Wow. That's... They're very practical, science-oriented, business-oriented, math-oriented. Reading skills have gone down very considerably. So great literature, poetry yeah. is alien to them. Not They've, absolutely, but certainly much more than 20 or 30 years ago, yep. Wow. Hmm. That's, that's uh, sad. We, what was Huxley... Uh, back, to, back to the book. Uh, what did, how did JFK understand uh, immortality? I think he was an amiable agnostic. Uh, was he surprised? Time. Was he surprised to find himself in conversation there with Lewis? Yes, yeah, he didn't know where he was. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I picture the place where uh, they meet as deliberately ambiguous. Uh -huh. uh, and some of the mystics say that hell and heaven are really the same place, only those in hell hate it and those in heaven love it. Yeah. Yeah. Cardinal Newman has a famous sermon where he says, if you take a, uh, somebody from the street and put him in a Gothic cathedral and make him sit through high mass, uh, the other people in the congregation will think they're in heaven, but he'll think he's in hell. <laughs> That's great. Because really everything is, is made of God who is love, and if you hate love, yeah. if you're tortured by love, then even if God made you sit in heaven, you'd think it's hell. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that in Old Testament uh, biblical theology, there's often this idea of judgment redemption, that the same event, the same experience uh, affects uh, the subject differently, uh, depending on the relationship to God. Well, sure. The same, the same light shows uh, different colors. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Kreef, thank you so much for your work You're over many welcome. years and also for joining us today. It's very helpful. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Al. Dr. Peter Kreeft, Between Heaven and Hell, a dialogue somewhere between death with John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, Aldous Huxley. If you've never had the chance to read this, get it. You'll enjoy it. It's a, uh, it's a profound book and at the same time a playful book. You don't get that combination very often. I'm Al Cresta. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying... I'm wrong? Are you saying, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault. I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry, very hard to say, very easy on relationships. 
I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom webinar. That's catholichom webinar. See you there. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me today. Peter Graves' book, Between Heaven and Hell, A Dialogue Somewhere Beyond Death, with uh, John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley, is available uh, in the online bookstore, if you head on over there. It's one of Peter's earlier works, uh, and also one of his most popular, and most, I believe, one of his most enduring so I heartily recommend it to you. Uh, again, head on over to AveMariaRadio.net to follow up on our conversations today. I mentioned in the first hour the situation in Argentina. Argentina is in an economic mess of a triple-digit inflation. The election of Javier Malay, a free market politician, as president is going to give us a very interesting look at how uh, a, a strong-willed political leader uh, with a free market orientation, how effectively will he be able to stabilize Argentina's economy, grow it, bring down inflation, and again, elevate uh, per capita income there you're looking uh, the numbers vary but people say 25 to 40 percent of people live in what uh, argentina defines as poverty so you want to keep that in mind in mind javier malay he's also a, a firm critic of pope francis now you know he's we don't have a serious statement from him we got a lot of off the cuff colorful and negative remarks about Pope Francis. Well, Pope Francis is expected to travel there next year, and I think we'll have a more um, sustained and um, worthwhile conversation to pay attention to. Have a great time, Thanksgiving. It's a great time for Thanksgiving. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.